Hi, I'm Dr. Al Hurt from New Paltz, New York. My practice focuses on allergy, asthma, immunology, and mast cell disease. And I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve right now is a misunderstanding about mast cell activation syndrome. We now recognize that this is a unique syndrome with a unique constellation of signs and symptoms because these symptoms are so diverse and involve multiple systems. By going to specialists with a specific complaint, patients are generally told, I can't find the problem, eventually being suggested to go to a psychiatrist because it must be in their head. This is clearly a physical problem. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back. Dr. Neil Smoller here, holistic pharmacist with a no BS attitude, here to give you a weekly supplement of truth. And you're going to take your dose and you're going to like it. Uh, it sure would be nice if you, our listeners, gave us five stars and a review over at whatever site that you use to listen to podcasts on. And maybe you share us with your friends. Who knows? Even tell them about the legal drug dealer that, you know, like supplements that's in your life. Whatever. But if you need to get in touch with me, just make sure you email me at podcast at woodstockvitamins.com. You can check us out at woodstockvitamins.com slash learn. We've got lots of great stuff, some new ebooks there for you to download. And of course, I was a DJ as a youngster, so I'm good with requests. Today, I'm going to answer the age old question What does a hista mean? <laughs> I know, it's funny. It's so good. So my job is to challenge the claims being made by the natural products industry and determine their validity from a mindset of a skeptical but accepting holistic practitioner. And I've been hearing lots of chatter about histamine intolerance. And of course, it's being sold as the reason for a myriad of problems that everybody has. Um, so today, I just brought in an expert. So we're going to speak with a histamine expert, and we're going to determine if and when histamine can be the devil everyone makes it out to be. Dr. Albert Hurt is a board-certified physician in internal medicine and allergy and immunology. In his practice, he specializes in mast cell diseases. Well, what's that? We'll talk all about it. He's involved in numerous clinical trials around allergy and immunology and is a participating physician in the American Initiative for Mast Cell Diseases. The best part, he's a local guy and he's supplement savvy, and he uses a holistic approach to managing mast cell disorders. So here he is, Dr. Albert Hurt, talking about histamine intolerance and mast cell diseases. So I have a sneaking suspicion that this histamine intolerance thing has a bit of misinformation surrounding it. Uh, do you want to weigh in on that as a, our local expert? Sure. Histamine intolerance is certainly one of the um, popular uh, sites when if you go through internet uh, searches looking for people with diverse symptoms. Um, I think histamine intolerance uh, it misunderstands the real source of histamine. Mm -hmm. So it is true that there is histamine content in foods. Yep. Uh, however, in most, in most people, we have an enzyme called DAO or diamine oxidase, which is going to metabolize that and basically essentially make it inactive. Mm -hmm. When I, in fact, that's supported in the literature when we've actually fed histamine orally uh, less than 1% of the histamine that we have uh, a person ingest appears in the systemic circulation. So for the most part, this histamine in food is going to be degraded 
uh, locally and not have systemic effects. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the there's this uh, new uh, way to sell people supplements and consults. Basically, if they have these non-specific symptoms, they just generally feel poor, you know, they don't feel good. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, they can do some searching on the internet and they find this histamine intolerance is, is the big thing. And the, they'll point to diets and they'll say, you have to do the histamine diet. And I've got one of the charts here. And it talks about histamine rich foods, right? So do you have do you have those off the top of your head? Or do you want me to consult the list? Uh, I mean, I know a lot of the histamine rich foods are purported to be things like red wine, uh, highly processed foods, fermented foods, uh, foods like that. Yeah, I mean, all the fun stuff. Yeah. So cured meats, lunch meats, you shouldn't be eating that stuff anyway. Sour bread, dried fruits, cheese, nuts, vegetables like avocados, eggplant, spinach. So essentially what they tell people is that because you have these symptoms, it's, it's re- related to the fact that your body's getting too much histamine in the diet. And so you need to stop eating these things. But then there's also foods that they say will increase our release of histamine. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, you know, I guess before we get to that, we can just say that histamine rich foods, as you've pointed out, we're not really absorbing that. Like our stomach is feeding that up and, and we're getting maybe one to 3%. So the histamine in foods really isn't a factor like the internet makes us believe. Right. I mean, that's true. I mean, the exception I would say is for those people who have a DAO deficiency, right. uh, which may be genetic. We don't know what the incidence of that is. Right. And the other category, which may have more problems with histamine foods, would be patients who have underlying inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease or also their colitis, where mm-hmm. the lining of the intestine is damaged, which is where the DAO is generally found. So it sounds it's less to do with histamine and more to do with this enzyme DAO, right? So you have Correct. this enzyme deficiency, and then this is a systemic enzyme because I don't I don't know much about this condition. All I know is about the quackery. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so like I'm kind of learning, and and so my approach while we have this conversation, just so you know, is is like super skeptic. I don't believe that this stuff is real, and I want to prove that it's it's not real. And I'm hoping, as an expert, you can kind of help me understand um, what is real about this and what isn't. So, um, so DAO is an enzyme. It's found everywhere. It's found in the lining of our gut. You're saying it's it's in the blood. I would assume it's primarily in the lining of the gut. We also have a DAO that's active in the liver. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if there is some histamine that is systemically absorbed, generally. DAO on the liver is going to take care of that on first pass through the liver. Right. And so then some for some people will have a, a deficiency in this enzyme or some sort of mutation. Now, is this something that, because one of my biggest pet peeves right now, I know we talked about your biggest pet peeve. My biggest pet peeve is the methylation and the misinformation around um, genetic disorders, how you can right. use a, uh, like an online test to tell you that, oh, you've got this genetic thing and um, and as a result, you need these uh, expensive supplements uh, that are just B vitamins, and you need these mm-hmm. expensive consults. So, is like DAO a part of that? Well, DAO, we actually don't. One of the potential problems is we don't have an available test in this country to either test your DAO levels or your DAO activity. Yeah. So, there's no absolute way of trying to make the diagnosis. Now, the methylation disorders is something I see people come to me. So a lot of people have done things on their own before they actually wind up coming to see me. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things a lot of people have done is the low histamine diet. Yeah. And uh, they're perplexed because they still have symptoms, number one. 
Mm-hmm. And number two, they're perplexed because they find that there are foods that are supposedly very high in histamine that they tolerate fine, and some that are uh, uh, high in histamine that they don't tolerate. So they don't understand that dichotomy. And oftentimes, they'll have gone through what I think of as, uh, unfortunately, very expensive, non-reversible, and non-validated testing, including the methylation test. Yeah. So when people show me their methylation test results, basically, my reaction is, I have no idea what this means. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've done an article on it just in case anybody's looking and they can check it on our website. It's uh, MTHFR is like fake or something like that. I'm sure I came up with something very creative. But mm. the, the the idea here is like um, you have to reinterpret that data using like another app because the, the, the sites that do it, they don't. Uh, they're not allowed to interpret that data, so right. uh, for legal reasons, because it's not it's not legitimate. Uh, and basically, what it's just showing is like enzyme activity level, and like if you have mutations there, which I try to tell people all the time that you can have mutations on a gene and still have full function, and that's the big thing with methylation. Um, sure. Yeah, because that's one of the things. Like when I was researching this, I, I always like to research topics by just googling, just like a patient would, and then mm-hmm. kind of going down those rabbit holes. So they were talking about. So again, we we first come to the this idea of histamine intolerance and it's primarily dietary motivated you're telling us that diet isn't really an issue here sure so that would be to me that would be um food related histamine i would call exogenous from outside yeah. the body yeah the real problem is endogenous histamine that's produced primarily by mast cells and basophils right so and right so the mast cells being like a, a balloon and the histamine being the glitter bomb in the balloon right mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So then, so back to this diet thing, because I just want to make sure that we're not being um, too judgy here. The histamine releasing food. So if I drank a bunch of alcohol, does that cause histamine to be released more like these sites are saying? To some degree, that is true. So we find if you have a mast cell activation disorder mm-hmm. where your uh, mast cells are essentially hyperreactive, mm-hmm. there are different things that seem to be clear triggers. Alcohol is among those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so generally when I talk to patients about their alcohol use or not use, um, the thing I'm really interested in is what happens if you just have one or two sips of alcohol. So when alcohol is really causing mass cell activation, these people are almost hundred percent of the time going to flush with just one or two sips of alcohol. If they don't do that and they seem to tolerate moderate uh, alcohol intake, I definitely don't tell them to restrict the alcohol. Right. And I think that's really, I think, in terms of foods, uh, that's probably the most important uh, trigger factor that we do find is alcohol. Yeah. Really interestingly, so mast cell activation syndrome, disorders, diseases really exist uh, throughout the world. But uh, we found that actually in the United States, you are more likely to have some degree of uh, alcohol problem if you have a mast cell disease, as opposed to Europe, where they drink wine. Uh, from the time they're born, <laughs> and basically, they seem to have almost no problem with alcohol, even if they have a mast cell problem. Right, and it could be one of those things. We actually had a uh, dietary allergen specialist on the podcast, and he was talking about how uh, we were wrong by telling people not to ingest peanut butter as a child, right? And like, oh, that's and, true. Yeah, and and that caused a lot of problems. So the same thing could be said with alcohol. Maybe we need to start drinking in kindergarten. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so, so now we've, so we've kind of touched on a couple topics, so let's keep walking through this. So the, the idea of histamine intolerance isn't really like an exogenous histamine intolerance really isn't real, but then we have this thing called mast cell activation syndrome 
and MCAS. So yes. do you want to give us kind of like an understanding of what this, this complex is and how it relates to histamine and, and DAO? Uh, sure. So uh, mast cell activation syndrome is one of the diseases on a spectrum of mast cell diseases. If we look at the far end of the spectrum, there will be systemic mastocytosis. That's okay. actually a genetic mutation that basically allows your mast cells to never turn off and they propagate and last longer than they should. And they're in a constant state of releasability. In um, cutaneous, which is really the pediatric form of mastocytosis, it generally presents uh, in infancy. So the patients I see with pediatric mastocytosis, generally I'm seeing them before the age of one because they get these very distinctive rashes. Uh, called or they're little brown patches that if you stroke them will actually turn into a hive. And mm. uh, that's an entirely another set of problems. In between that is mast cell activation syndrome, mm -hmm. where the problem is not genetic. It's not like you have too many mast cells like you do in mastocytosis mm -hmm. or that they're perpetually, but they're more reactive than they should be. They're sensitive. So, they're like me. Yeah, exactly. they, they don't like criticism. They break down easily. And they get mad at you if you annoy them. <laughs> so, the and again, a mast cell, um, I hope everybody got my analogy. So, it's like a balloon. With, and the histamine, there's like lots of molecules of histamine to, as an understatement inside of a mast cell. And that's typically what happens is like we get exposed to an allergen. It, it kind of uh, activates that mast cell. The mast cell breaks. The histamine right. gets released. And then all of our immune factors are kind of called to the site because of that mast cell being broken, broken apart. Right. That's true. But as we've like looked at mast cells over the last decade or so, mm -hmm. uh, what we found is there are a lot of other receptors on mast cells aside from the classic allergy receptor mm -hmm. that can do the same thing. So they can produce allergic-like symptoms without being a specific allergy. So interesting. We, can test, we can test for... Um, uh, for an allergy to a particular thing, they'll be negative, mm -hmm. but their mast cells are using other receptors to produce an allergic-like reaction. Now, histamine is definitely the most famous mediator that comes out of mast cells, but there are probably, there are over 30 other mediators uh, that are also released. Some of the more important ones are things like uh, leukotrienes, mm -hmm. uh, prostaglandins, which mm -hmm. are involved in some of the symptoms that you get when mast cells activate. Interesting. So what kinds of compounds will interact with mast cells that are not allergens? I'll give you a great example, which would be um, people who, uh, there's a class of antibiotics, which I'm sure you know about, called quinolones, yeah. uh, which would be things like Cipro, Levaquin, Avalox. Uh, so we've noted for a while that people can have first-dose anaphylactic reactions when they take those drugs. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to become allergic to something, your immune system has to be exposed to it first mm -hmm. before it'll start making allergic antibodies to trigger reactions. We have found something called, there's among these receptors on mast cells, a lot of them are uh, fall into the category of G-protein coupled receptors, mm -hmm. uh, which have all kinds of numbers. So there are hundreds of these G-protein coupled receptors. We've actually now identified a specific G-protein coupled receptor, receptor that is activated in prone people by quinolone antibiotics and will cause first-dose anaphylactic reactions. Wow. So full-on anaphylaxis, and then their body then catches up and, and has the standard anaphylactic stuff too. Sure. Wow. That's pretty intense. 
So, um, so the mast cell activation, so when I was Googling, doing my research, mast cell activation disorder was uh, mentioned. Is that different than mast cell activation syndrome? Uh, it is. It's a much more general term and really encompasses the whole spectrum of uh, mast cell disease. So mast cell disorders include the, the pediatric or cutaneous yeah. mastocytosis, systemic mastocytosis, mm -hmm. and a really interesting syndrome, which we've identified probably in the last six years. Uh, so one of the things we do to measure mast cell burden is a blood test for serum tryptase, which is one of the, it's a unique mediator that mast cells make. And we have found now that there is a hereditary form of hypertryptosemia. So these people inherit from one or both parents multiple copies of the gene that allows you to make tryptase. So they will always have high tryptase levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it also makes us think that uh, it makes us want to continue to look for a genetic predisposition potentially to developing a mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah. What's interesting about the hereditary uh, tryptase uh, people is that many, we, we don't know how prevalent it is because many of them don't have any symptoms, which just uh, suggests that tryptase itself is not an important mediator. It's just a marker of mast cells. But there'll be a percentage of those people who will develop mast cell activation syndrome. It's not mastocytosis. So this this whole thing is, you were saying, is relatively new, right? Um, yes. Mast cell activation syndrome. So, like, Justin, I was re reading 2016 is when they first had the ICD-9 code. So this was like really new. right, right. Yeah. So it was first described probably 11 years ago, mm -hmm. mostly described by uh, researchers at uh, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital and uh, associated with Harvard. That would be people like Mariana Castells and C. Kemp, who's now at the University of Michigan. They were the first people to describe this as a syndrome and try and come up with diagnostic criteria. Yeah. Yeah. So there, everybody's doing it correctly in it. And of course you, you know, you being the local expert, you're doing it correct correctly. Now I'm, I'm on the internet and I'm, I'm looking at all of this stuff. So how prevalent is this mast cell activation syndrome? Is this something that's happening to a lot of people? Uh, we think it is probably uh, as we start to sort of codify diagnostic criteria and uh, recognize these patients as they come in, we think it may affect up to as much as 5% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not I was seeing them, like a couple percent. Yeah. yeah. Not all of them are going to wind up with anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. but they're going to have these multi-system symptoms that are related to mast cell activation. Mm -hmm. The, yeah, I mean, so the way that it seems though, when you're looking at these quack sites is that it's such a prevalent disease. It, somebody referred to it as the hidden diagnosis and they, <laughs> and they've been saying that it's been associated with obesity, diabetes, skin conditions, IBS, and depression. So I'm not sure about most of those. I would say what it's associated <laughs> with. I mean, the first thing I'm looking for and someone comes to me that comes to me that thinks they may have a mast cell problem. The most common uh, system involved is the skin. Right. So probably 85% are going to have things like flushing, uh, itchiness, uh, hives, angioedema, uh, even increased sweating sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I would say of the people that I evaluate, I would say at least 80% have a sign which is called dermatographism. So if I take a, uh, a tongue blade and I stroke their skin in the same spot five times, most people will get red if I scratch them hard enough. 
but the people mm-hmm. who are dermatographic will actually get a, a hive in the shape of my scratch. And that's one of the signs that is definitely consistent with a mast cell problem. Mm. So aside from, you know, we talked about medication, foods, some of the other uh, triggers are physical. So things like friction, vibration, heat is a very common trigger for mast cell uh, symptoms. Insect stings are a common trigger. So we have people who have anaphylaxis to things like bees, yellow jackets, wasps. Um, they have a, a higher percentage of those may have an underlying mast cell problem, including possibly mastocytosis. Right. And even in a lot of the people I see, they will get exaggerated reactions to things like mosquito bites. Now, we all get a reaction to a mosquito bite. It gets itchy. These people get giant ones, and they last for a long time. What, I mean, what do you think when you hear people associating like every other condition under the sun to MCIS? Uh, I get very suspicious. <laughs> right. I mean, so the symptoms, it sounds like you're saying that this is a very specific skin type reaction, but then a lot of other people are saying that histamine intolerance, MCIS is connected with just like the general malaise and fatigue of being an American that doesn't want to go to work. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, fatigue can be associated. The other common uh, organ system involved would be GI tract. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times in the mass cell patients I see, they're going to present with a history of abdominal bloating, pain, and a lot of times loose bowel movements. Mm -hmm. Um, Another place would be the respiratory tract where rhinitis or runny nose, uh, uh, asthma-like symptoms, throat itching and swelling. Those are symptoms that I see. Mm-hmm. Cardiac-wise, we see people with palpitations, tachycardia, and syncopal or passing out episodes, or pre-almost uh, uh, passing out episodes. Yeah. They can definitely be associated with uh, uh, mast cell problems. Right. It sounds a little bit more aggressive than the just like the generalized, I don't feel good type of stuff that people are dealing sure. with, you know? So let's talk about causes of it. We were talking about like DAO being deficient, mm-hmm. you know, so again, online, heavy metal toxicity. And specifically, this guy is pointing to vaccines because vaccines, he believes, have heavy metals in them, even though they really don't. Um, uh, but heavy metal toxicity, gut dysbiosis, meaning like, uh, you know, an infection in the gut right. or right. like or like uh, SIRS, CIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Mm-hmm. Are any of those things uh, something that we can blame as causing MCIS? Um, I would say uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's the easy I don't answer. Have to think long on that one, <laughs> right? Um, you know, it's it, it. It all follows a formula. The, you know, generalized feelings, uh, hidden diagnosis, uh, something your doctors don't know. People are confused about. You know, here's a million different things that could potentially be causing. And oh yeah, here's here's the answer with a thousand bucks consult yeah. and some testing. So what what will cause this in people? Is there something, so besides the genetic component, is there something that can trigger uh, this in people? Uh, yeah, and that, well, that it's actually uh, potentially a Nobel Prize winning question if I could answer it. <laughs> um, and it would certainly lead to a more targeted therapy. If we look at large numbers of patients who meet the diagnostic criteria for a mass activation syndrome, there are uh, a number of things that seem to stand out. Sometimes it's preceded by a significant infection. It could be viral infection, bad flu, bacterial pneumonia that seems to reset their mast cells. And they get, they get over the initial illness, but they start to develop these other symptoms. Uh, in some people, it's related to physical trauma. 
So we see people who've had uh, significant motor vehicle accidents or trauma in that way that start to develop mast cell symptoms as a sequela or a, uh, a uh, residual of that uh, traumatic event. Occasionally, even uh, bad psychiatric, uh, psychological traumas can, uh, can influence mast cells. And uh, there is some support for, uh, I'm not talking about the toxic mold thing now, but significant yeah. mold exposures can sometimes be a mast cell resetter. And actually, you've also found on the mast cell some of those G, uh, uh, G protein receptors that recognize some specific moles that uh, can be triggers. But I mean, to, to find, we, we don't, so the bottom line is we really don't know why someone goes from having normal reactive mast cells to hyperreactive mast cells. And uh, that is an area of research because if we can answer that question, we can try and look to find curative therapies that resell set mast cell hyperreactivity and immune, uh, inappropriate immune responses. Uh, you know, one of the things that people who, so what I find is, you know, a lot of people who think they may have a mast cell problem, they're going to consult with generally one of two major specialties, that would be allergy, immunology, or hematology, oncology. And many of those doctors don't really have a background or experience that is really sufficient to do this. So I'll see a lot of people who go to an allergist. They'll say, I think I have mast cell activation syndrome. These are my symptoms. And the allergist will... Um, do the first step in testing, which is to do a, a blood test for tryptase level. Mm-hmm. That'll come back normal, and they'll say, well, your tryptase is normal. You don't have a mast cell problem, and that's a totally incorrect way. If you had mastocytosis, your burden of mast cells is always high, and the tryptase is essentially 100% of the time going to be elevated. The problem in mast cell activation is not the numbers. It's the reactivity. So I will always go... I always incorporate tryptase testing with a 24-hour urine collection to look for a couple stable mediators of mast cells, which would be N-methyl histamine, which is the stable metabolite of histamine, and also for a prostaglandin metabolite. And a lot of times what I'll find is I'll see someone who's got consistent symptoms, normal, relatively normal level tryptase, and elevated, most commonly, N-methyl histamine. So that tells me for their mast cell burden, their muscles are too reactive and they're releasing way more mediators than they should be. So, I mean, the big question then is like, if somebody believes that they have a histamine intolerance, mm-hmm. who should they go see? What type of physician should they go see? Well, I would say that it would not be inappropriate to see someone who has experience in mast cell disorders. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of these people who think they have histamine intolerance, although that may be a minor factor we're really talking potentially about a mast cell problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I'd say that someone who has experience in mast cell diseases is probably best equipped to uh, evaluate their symptoms, evaluate what they think is going on, do appropriate testing to try and establish the actual diagnosis, the right diagnosis. Do you feel like histamine or MCAS is something that like a non-specialist should address at all? Uh, not really. Uh, right. I think they don't have the background or the expertise to really uh, know how to approach it, even in terms of treatment, but certainly in terms of diagnosis. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it's a, a little bit of a step above, even for you know allergists and such. 
the treatment though, like when somebody is diagnosed with this and, uh, you know, walk me through the algorithm, what does it look like? How do we, how do we help people with this disease? So the first thing we usually start with is trying to block mediators from mast cells and the common ones are, um, using antihistamines. Yep. Uh, and a lot of times we'll combine that with, uh, an H2 blocker, which is something like Zantac or, uh, Pepsi. Which is always funny. I always like to tell people about this because people will mm -hmm. take that medicine and they'll say, well, that's a reflux medicine. What am yeah. I doing taking this for allergies? And it's yeah. just because the drug doesn't really know what it's labeled for. It just knows it does what it does. And right. so since that has a role on histamine receptors, that's how it helps out with reflux. You're going to not have heartburn and your mast cells are going to be so happy with you. I mean, if we look <laughs> at if we look at skin um, receptors for histamine, probably mm -hmm. at least 15% are H2 receptors that are not going to be blocked by traditional antihistamines, but are blocked by H2 blockers like Zantac, Pepsi. So do you guys have to use um, uh, older generation uh, antihistamines for more profound effect, or can you get away with the new like second generation ones that uh, like Claritin and Zyrtec and such? Yeah, I usually use second generations. I mean, the ones I like a lot I, with the Zyrtec, Zizol, I like a lot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Allegra, I like. I'm not a big fan of Claritin. I think it's a weaker histamine blocker. Yeah. yeah it's I the, mean, I, I think it could be used as a placebo in a lot of studies, but that's my own <laughs> personal perspective on it. Yeah. Sometimes I'll go to, as an interesting drug that I sometimes use in people I'm having trouble controlling, which is theoretically not available in the United States, and that's called ketodafin. Oh, yeah. Ketodafin is available as an eye drop over the counter. Yeah. Uh, Zatador. And it's an H1, H2 blocker, which seems to also have some mast cell stabilizing properties. So yeah. I actually get it through compounding pharmacies. I was just going to say, I used to make ketodafin uh, uh, all the time for people uh, mm -hmm. uh, through our compounding pharmacy. So yeah, you still can have access. And that's a great place where those kinds of businesses shine to get yes. access to drugs that we don't have access yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even some of the other mediator uh, drugs that I use would then be... Uh, so if that's not sufficient, then I think it's plausible that leukotriene's a problem. Yep. I'll use a leukotriene um, modifier or blocker like a Singular mm -hmm. or a Montelukast. Mm -hmm. I have found some people who are actually sometimes they'll have to get the Montelukast compounded because uh, Montelukast is one of the medications that contains lactose. And some of the people with lactose intolerance don't Got tolerate it. Montelukast. Is there crossover between MCAS and other like allergies and intolerances? Um, I mean, there is. Uh, in terms of intolerances, a lot of that I think is actually uh, partially a mast cell activation problem. Not so much lactose intolerance, which are sort of grouped into more com much more common than DAO uh, deficiency. Mm -hmm. um, but there is overlap, and so it's not uncommon for me. Some of these people may have classic allergies, or may have a history of at least mild asthma that uh, is now being uh, amplified by their mast cell reactivity. Mm -hmm. The further down the protocol, so like other kinds of medications that you would use, any mast cell stabilizers, anything sure. like that? So I'll also use mast cell stabilizers. Uh, unfortunately, we're somewhat limited in what we have. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I'll sometimes go to ketonophen, which may have some mast cell stabilizing effect, mm -hmm. particularly if GI symptoms are prominent. I use oral chromalin solution, yeah, which is um, a mast cell stabilizer. It doesn't have a good systemic absorption, so it's mostly going to help the GI symptoms. And I have found a lot of people respond well in their GI symptoms. 
The only caveat I have about chromalin, aside from the fact it's relatively expensive and is an orphan drug, so it takes a couple days to get into a pharmacy, uh, yeah. is that uh, I would never start someone on chromalin at what I would consider gold doses. Mm-hmm. So I always introduce it slowly, usually at starting with one amp, one amp before one meal. I mean, we go up to four times a day, sometimes two um, ampules of chromalin four times a day, but I always introduce slowly because I think if you introduce too quickly, you can actually exacerbate some of the GI symptoms. Right. Yeah, you have diarrhea in a bowl. Exactly. And that doesn't make people happy. The... Um yeah, so I mean, just for the audience at home that aren't pharmacy nerds like me, um, uh-huh. the balloons are more sensitive to pop. They they throw glitter everywhere. So two of uh-huh. the treatments are cleaning up the glitter, and another one is stopping the balloons from popping. Right. And that's what, what we're basically doing. Is, is there any weight given to, like, supplementing DAO? Because that's what I see the most, people wanting uh, to supplement DAO. Yeah, I, I, I've seen people. So it is available, DAO, is I think, I think there's only one place that it's available through in the U.S. Um, it's a good quick test, but uh, I've seen a lot of people who've tried it. And in patients that I've seen, uh, the improvement with DAO supplements has not been good. Mm-hmm. There are some supplements that I think are potentially helpful for mast cell stabilization. Well, let's hear it. So quercetin, great, uh, is a has mild antihistamine effect and. Uh, in some studies, it's actually a more potent mass cell uh, stabilizer than chromalin. And what dose? So I'm usually looking for about 500 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. You and have to split that dose up or 500 milligrams once it can daily? Be done, it could be done once daily or 250 twice a day. I generally don't go. It, a lot of times it will be combined with vitamin C or bromelain. Mm-hmm. I'll usually try to go with just the pure uh, quercetin. Got it. Another one that's less known is luteolin which is another flavonoid, which is what quercetin is. Mm-hmm. And lutein also is a fairly potent mast cell stabilizer uh, that uh, I also use in, in some people. And uh, that is a little harder to get, but it's definitely available on a number of sites uh, um, as a pure powder. Uh, the problem, one of the problems with quercetin and lutein is systemic uh, availability. Mm-hmm. So both of those are generally going to come in a capsule. Mm-hmm. They're going to be degraded to a large degree in the GI tract. So trying to get uh, enough systemic absorption can be a problem. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll go to higher doses on quercetin if it's tolerated, and I think it might be helpful. And actually, lutein, I'll sometimes use it in a sublingual form to avoid the GI tract. Mm. Then a newer one, which I've been using uh, recently that's interesting, is PEA, uh, which stands for palmitoyl ethanolamide. So we usually call it P, but I will tell you that uh, the other day I was seeing a patient and I told her I wanted to try to try P and she looked at me <laughs> and said, I don't care if it helps every one of my symptoms. I'm not urine. <laughs> so right. And I nobody can of, pee on my skin. Right? I sort of revised how I introduced the topic, but <laughs> it, it, it's a, uh, actually it's a natural occurring medium chain fatty acid that hits a number of receptors. Uh, one of which is one of those G-protein receptors, which inhibits mast cells. And uh, it also, there's another G-protein receptor in the intestine that it blocks that may help with the intestinal symptoms. So Mm -hmm. palmitoyl ethanolamide is something, or P is something I've been using as well. 
one of the things I always find with the natural products industry and the, like the practitioners that just want to focus on supplements is that they just want to focus on supplements. So they'll often ignore or downplay the benefit of medications or they'll uh, really stress the, the negatives of them and they'll right. want to just kind of live in the supplement world. Right. Where do supplements fall in your treatment algorithm? Are you doing supplements first? Or are you doing them um, only after you've had like some mod moderate success with the traditional stuff? I'll usually start with the um, antihistamines, the H2 blockers. And you know, even for people who are poorly insured, these now are mostly over the counter. They're, I mean, some of the good ones are over the counter. They're relatively inexpensive. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a good start point. Yeah. Uh, depending on where their symptoms are, I you know, I may add one of quercetin or lutein, or I'll have them take some pee. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, usually a second line to me would be Montelukast and Chromalin. A lot of times, if the GI symptoms really dominate, I may go to Chromalin as a first-line treatment as well. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting that you put quercetin over Chromalin. It, it's interesting, and it was interesting to me, but there is some data showing it may be a more potent mast cell uh, uh, stabilizer. So there's a couple others that I have on my list that I just wanted to run by to see what you think. Mm. Um, selenium, vitamin C, either one of those. So selenium, I haven't seen any data that suggests that is particularly helpful in mast cell problems. There is some scattered uh, information that vitamin C may be uh, helpful in some mast cell patients, so I don't disagree with that. Yeah, uh, I mean, vitamin C is one of those things, like, it's really chewed up heavily and rapidly yeah. uh, turning over cells, so the gut lining, essentially, and immune cells, of course, are just gobbling up vitamin C. I try to teach people that the high-dose vitamin C, though, uh, you're not really absorbing most of it. Exactly. Which is actually kind of beneficial, though, if you think about it, if you're trying to calm down the mast cells of the gut, mm -hmm. maybe taking that high-dose vitamin C might be beneficial because then yeah. it's being delivered to the gut, you know? There's some support for vitamin C. Also, curcumin is some support. It may be helpful in mast cell problems. Yeah, the turmeric was the next one on my list and other, mm -hmm. like, anti-inflammatories like holy basil. But it wouldn't be something that you as a practitioner would go to. You would just say, yeah, there's something there. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I'm not usually um, using it as part of what I'm, what I'm doing to treat them. Mm -hmm. And some people, when you know, I'm getting some results, but not enough, and particularly those that are prone, prone to actual anaphylactic episodes, of which I have a number, uh, something I've actually been using lately has been uh, Zolaire or Olizumab. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I, I know I'm not alone in the mass cell world that we're getting a lot of good results from Zolaire. Uh, and we're not exactly sure exactly why. Mm -hmm. I mean, it definitely binds allergic antibodies, so that's certainly part of the mechanism. But it seems to have a modulating effect on a lot of these mast cell receptors as well, although we haven't clearly proven that yet. Solar is super expensive. You've got to jump through hoops to get an insurance company to um, cover it. But I have uh, had good success with Zolaire as for people who are not having optimal responses to other treatments. Right. Um, anything else that people can do to help uh, manage uh, histamine intolerance, MCAS? I mean, I would say stay cool. Yeah. Control your stress. Stress can, through, again, through neurotransmitters, can actually affect uh, mass cell activation. Uh, and um, uh, so I think my, you know, I, I don't discourage people from doing things like yoga and meditation just to get a better general control on their stress levels. Mm -hmm. There's some drugs that you are uh, probably going to have a problem with if you have a mast cell problem. Mm -hmm. It's not something that most people are going to take, but opiates 
classically are mast cell activators. Got it. Because there's a specific receptor on mast cells for uh, opioids, the mu opioid receptor. Got it. So then uh, potentially, uh, this is kind of like a shot in the dark, CBD. Um, CBD. Does it work on the mu opioid? Yeah, CBD works on the mu opioid, doesn't it? Uh, it does. And actually on mast cells, we also have CBD, uh, CB1 and CB2 receptors, Ooh. which are actually hanging close together with the uh, G protein receptor that PEA uh, utilizes. So there is some reason to think that CBD uh, can have a mass cell suppressive effect as well. And it also just proves the fact that I can't get through a single podcast episode without talking about CBD oil. <laughs> well, I don't know if you need the THC or not, but... Uh, yeah, you always need a little THC in your yeah. life, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that's that's pretty much what I had. I think um, we've done a real good job here talking about this disease and kind of bringing some legitimacy to it. I always say these these diseases are the deadly deceptions, things that have like these ambiguous symptoms that are real and people are really suffering from, but the natural products industry tries to, um, you know, they're like they're they're just vultures and they just try to kind of exploit the desperation, uh, you know, and uh, try to uh, capitalize on it. And I think it's important that people hear how to really treat this and how to really address this. This is there anything that you you think we should have covered or anything that like no I know. I'll just go along with some of what you just said. And I would say I would always be um, suspicious of someone who you go to see who not only wants to treat you with supplements, but specifically their own personal blend of su supplements that they're going to sell you, mm -hmm. number one. Number two, I think that you always have to, in general in medicine, if you can't come up with a diagnostic criteria that seems to be validated, I would be suspicious about some of these other diagnoses because... You can't just go by symptoms and say, okay, if you've got these symptoms, you have this problem. Right. So I'm looking for something objective that we can measure that'll validate what we're thinking about might, what might be the problem. Right. And even with that, it's like, what are we objectively measuring and is it telling the proper story? Like, are we using it in the correct context correct. with the other supporting information, not just, you know, is this test uh, come out positive or negative kind correct. of thing? Correct. Tests so. don't stand alone. They're always interpreted in terms of the the picture that the patient is presenting with. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for coming on and talking about uh, histamine intolerance, mast cell activation syndrome. It's great to have an expert so close to us in the Hudson Valley here. And, um, you know, it, you're going to be our go-to guy for this subject. So I hope you're ready for that. Been my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, Neil. Thank you, Dr. Hurt, for your insight on this, and we'll definitely be creating some content around histamine intolerance and mast cell diseases, specifically supplement recommendations, because he's got lots of good insight on that. The big take-home, your local naturopath has no business discussing histamine diseases with you. This needs to be reserved for an expert. Mast cell disorders are a unique subset of allergy specialties, so you should even look further than typical allergy physicians. Uh, and while it's a great idea to avoid histamine-rich foods and histamine-releasing foods, as Dr. Hurt said, diet's got a small role in the whole picture. So if you want to reach Dr. Hurt, he'd love to chat. His email, npallergy40 at gmail.com. That's nancypeterallergy40 at gmail.com. His practice is right here in New Paltz, New York, so feel free to give him a shout at 845-255-6023. And he'll, you know, have a conversation with you at least and maybe guide you to a local practitioner. He recommends people check out the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology at AAAA. 
I.org. Uh, four A's and an I. That actually sounds like my Uncle Tony. Yay, yay, yay. Right, whatever. So that's it for this week. Until next time, do what you can to feel good, especially about what's in your supplements. Be well. <laughs>